0: Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films, every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Uh, On September 26, 1983, an alarm sounded to indicate that five American nuclear missiles had been launched against the Soviet Union. Russian Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov defied military protocol, ignoring the incoming attack that was being confirmed by all of his warning systems. He followed his own sense of responsibility and declared it a false alarm. His decision spared the world a nuclear holocaust. Now, decades later, the forgotten hero travels to the United States to accept an award from the United Nations, And to meet some of his heroes as well. We are joined today by the director of the film, The Man Who Saved the World. That would be director Peter Anthony. Peter, Peter, welcome to Film School.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Glad to
1: be here. Yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah. Uh, I I know that uh, um, there are are a lot of stories uh, floating around from the Cold War era. I think we can, you know, and especially from the 80s. There was an awful lot of antagonism going on between uh... america and the soviet union at that time uh... so tell me a little bit about how you came to this story it's a fascinating story but tell me how did you first hear about this
1: Yes, first of all the listeners I'm, i was born in 1971 so I'm, I'm 44 years old so i grew up on during the uh, cold war so we were really really scared about all this you know when i was a kid you know we we're so scared about that we would uh, get killed from a nuclear blast or you know or something going on wrong but when i heard about the story the first time was about ten years ago i read a n- newspaper article about stanislav petrov who saved the world from nuclear war and frankly the first time i read about it i didn't believe it mm-hmm. and then I, I went to the internet and i found out that nbc dateline have you know tried to cover a story like ten minutes interview and i'm like okay let me look into this so what we just did we were just like this this is just an amazing story and it hasn't really you no know, been told just in a small, small NBC deadline. That was about it. Mm. So me and um, a photographer and my producer and a soundman, we just skipped off to uh, the U.S. We borrowed ten thousand dollars and we just tried to get a hold of Stanislav. Wow. I remember the first time I came out there. You know, uh, I don't know if, if people have been to Russia, but Russia has really changed within the last ten years. Now it's a very rich capital. But at that time, it was quite poor. So we left uh, Moscow and was driving, driving for like an hour. And suddenly there was no pavement in the longer. There was only, you know, dirt roads, no asphalt on the streets. And it was, it was quite cold. It was like minus 10 degrees, and people were walking around there, you know, drinking in the street with no shoes on. Mm. It was really, really a poor, poor area. And we opened the door, and I've never been starstruck in my whole life. And suddenly I opened the door, and I see this little man standing there, Stanislav Petrov, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, looking very humble, looking very poor, and I felt like I was meeting Jesus almost. Mm. I was really blown away about him. And then we sat down, and we were supposed to be there for a week, and we ended up being there for the first time for three weeks. Wow. And then the whole
0: story started off. Wow, well, that's amazing, and it is often the case that uh, the you know sort of defying your expectations can have just as dramatic an impact on me on meeting exactly. as meeting your expectations and. It sounds like that was the case with uh, with him, with Stanislav. Uh, yeah,
1: also, because you, know, you have to have to understand when I met him the first time, you know, I was coming into the apartment and it was so filthy and dirty, mm-hmm. you know. And suddenly I was like, "How can I, an ex officer at such a high level be living like this?" And I saw there was these beautiful, red, uh, you know, pink drapes in on, the, on at, at the windows, and I was thinking, "There has to—I mean, it looks like a woman had been living here before, you know." Mm-hmm. And she suddenly that. Definitely not living here any longer because it was so dirty. And then I started to get really inter- interested into his personal story. How is it that you know? Who was his wife? How what happened to him?
0: Well, I think one of the strengths of the man who saved the world is that it is uh, it is this hybrid of documentary and narrative film. Uh, but it but it's m- more it's about him as a person. And there's a uh, there's the the story itself, which is amazing and every living, breathing human beings should know just how close we were to what would certainly have yeah. been the end of the world as we know it. But then there's uh, this uh, very humble... I mean, there's a very... Then we get into the, his backstory, sort of a a, st- a redemptive story of sorts, and really fleshes yeah. out this story, the whole episode and all of the circumstances surrounding it in ways that uh, really make for a very powerful experience. Um so did you know right away, once you, I mean, you, you obviously were determined to go and find out about uh, Stanislav Petrov. But when you got there, I mean, it was sounds like it was fairly quickly that you, you saw in him and in his manner, uh, not only to tell his story, but to, but to make him such an integral part of your film. When, when did all of that kind of take place?
1: You know, first of all, when you're a storyteller, of course you want a personal story to a film because else you, I, could only, I knew that I could only make like a 45, maybe a TV program if I only stuck to the story about what happened that time. Mm-hmm. But of course, it was very intriguing for me that I had this feeling like and when meeting Stanislaw the first time, it was almost like meeting, it could be a, a homeless man living on the street, that you just walk past every single day and you don't even notice them. Mm-hmm. And suddenly found out that these people also had another life, and maybe they had done great things. And that's what happened. Stanislav, I must admit, I was really, really emotional, touched by his decline. Yeah. You know?
0: Well, well it's I can quite...
1: remember my translator told me, what, what if this man had been 44 years old and looked like Matt Damon? Maybe he would have been a big hero in Hollywood, and now he's just an old man has done this great thing, and he's living on a small pension. He has no money and just living there by himself. It was heartbreaking. So I really had to go into that story, but it was very difficult to get into his story because the first time he told me, you know, he told me, Peter, I have to understand one thing. I will never get emotional in front of the camera, and I'm I'm never going to tell you my personal stories. I'm a Russian colonel. We don't do that. So Mm -hmm. it took me many years to get into his personal
0: story. Well, and obviously, yeah, he does get into a story, and it's it's heartbreaking and... uh and it 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 gives us the even greater context and uh, and impetus to the drama of what happened based on his own internal personal uh, issues that and the things that he was he, he and his family were dealing with. It, it really is remarkable. Now, but when did you make this decision? Uh, I mean, sort of. I guess there's sort of two movies here or two parts of this movie. They're very important, but yeah, he he. He is a pretty commanding presence. I mean, it takes a little bit of time to get used to him. Uh initially he seems reticent and uh surly kind. and the rest uh, So he's not the the most uh, appealing a, at first, but boy, we watch right before our eyes we watch a man uh who change. Uh, and um you said how how, how what over period of time did this film take place? What was the We time? shoot
1: a period of time of almost 10 years. Okay. Him. So, so there. That what exploded. happened was of course when yeah. you have so much footage then you start grabbing for the story because yeah. still you know it's a real story so you can't invent anything you, I mean you yeah. have to go with the story so of course during all this time the story changed six, four, six times so we made maybe three different movies you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, suddenly you find out that I don't got to spoil anything but a family mem- member suddenly dies and then wow now we have to make a new movie and now we have to get new financing okay. so yeah it was Okay. Well, what it, what it looks like really like a Hollywood Buster film in a way when you see about the storyline, but but a lot of stuff just happened during the way.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and again, I, I keep referring to this sort of narrative documentary kind of uh, uh, yeah. the the parts of it. I wouldn't say the tension between the two, but there is a little bit of tension in in well in both stories. But uh, where did, when did you make that determination? Because you did want to tell his backstory, I guess. Right? Uh, yeah. Is that why you decided what, what, to go for with the narrative? Part of it.
1: Yeah. What, what, what about the narrative? I mean, I, I had different uh, problems making the film. The first problem was, um, you know, first we made a movie about a man. We found out late in the process we had to edit the film. Let's let's edit the film about this man who, who you know, it's almost like the, the Greek Odyssey. It's called a mare about a man you know who has to travel uh, across the globe you know to save the world or uh, to get recognized to find back that to come back to his own country to get recognized, and he doesn't even do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the, the story we had with Stanislav Petrov, the oldest Stanislav Petrov. And then there was the whole re- reenactment part, you know, what happened back in 1983. And we also did that film. Yeah. But what we did was we edited two separate films, mm. and then we sat down and t- started editing them together afterwards. Mm. So it wasn't like a normally documentary BBC style where, you know, a man talking about something, and then we see what he's talking about. Right. Because we couldn't go that way, we we only we were editing with an emotional feeling, you know, sitting there, look, watching the screen, saying, "Let's forget about this normal narrative structure. Let's try to go with the the emotional feeling of the story instead."
0: Well, well, then that explains what why I would hesitate to call the the parts of the film that aren't the documentary the reenactments because we've become quite used to reenactments, and I go back. Yeah, they're
1: the, not reenactments; more
0: like a feature film. It is. I go back to Thin Blue Line was, was the film, for me, that sort of made reenactments uh, an important, integral part of telling a, a documentary story. And, but this feels differently. Yeah. It, you're right. Yeah, I mean, just what you said, it's, it is, it's a narrative film within, within a documentary context.
1: Yeah, because I felt when I was making this film, I didn't want to do a BBC documentary. They're, they're very good at doing right, that, but I'm not right. a journalist. Right. So I didn't want a man sitting there talking head talk about something happened. Then you say, like, oh, black and white pictures, what happened at the time, let's see what happened. Yeah. For me, it was almost like, you know, let's make two movies. And also, you know, what happened back in 83, I told this beautiful story about a man who's, who was not supposed to go on the job. He has a wife, dead sick of cancer, and he saves the world. And even though he saves the world, he loses his own family, he loses everything. Yeah. So I made a film like that so they could go separately. And that's also what we found out when we're editing. Normally you would like people talking. You would see two minutes, then talking again. We didn't do that. Suddenly we just went into a feature film back in A3 for, for maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes right. with no interruption.
0: Right. right.
1: So, yeah. I've never tried to do that before. Now I have my editor so, uh, to, to to tell a story like this, but we just
0: tried it out. Yeah. Well, it, it, it is a fascinating... if. if uh, just in terms of pure cinema, uh, I have never seen it done in the way that you did it, and especially to the degree to which it's done in The Man Who Saved the mm. World. I want to let our listeners know that we're speaking with Peter Anthony, He's the director of The Man Who Saved the World. The story, a compelling story in and of itself, and I want to go back to this story. Um, but I, yes. I I think, you know, normally I would say I wouldn't want to uh, give away a, a spoiler alert but the fact that you and I are sitting here today talking about this is a spoiler enough for what happened uh, on September 26, 1983. Uh, it was a, a an apparent attack by uh, of up to five American nuclear missiles were heading towards the Soviet Union, and Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov had to make a decision whether or not they were actually under attack or not, and had he chosen to launch a a reactive or a, uh, a a retaliatory strike against the United States inevitably would have led to the world as we know it. All right? Yes. <laughs> so, so I guess we can do away with spoiler alerts. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're still alive. <laughs> we're here. Sorry, audience, but we're still alive. <laughs> it is remarkable. Um, but it is, again, as I said before, it's so much more. And let's talk a little bit about as you did, alluded to, uh, his recognition um, by the United Nations. And tell, take us through the story a, a little bit of that in terms of him coming to the United Nations.
1: Yeah, first of all, what happened was I was, was going there. I was supposed to be there filming him for a week, and then suddenly we stayed for three weeks because I really fell in love with this character and just had to grasp more about who is this guy. Mm-hmm. And, and the last day of when we had to leave uh, Russia again, we stand at them my like, we, we have to go now with the car. And suddenly Stanislav breaks in with a whole pla- big plastic bag with fan letters from the U.S., you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. small kids who have heard about him in school. You know, a 12-year, a 13-year-old girl uh, from Oklahoma is sending me $5. It was really heartbreaking. And suddenly I find this letter saying, "K. Kostner, I think it was Columbia Pictures, uh, Paramount Pictures, I can't remember. And it was like donating $1,500. And I'm like, who is this guy? And he told me, oh, this is Kevin Costner. I said, Kevin Costner, the actor? Yeah, yeah, he wrote me. I said, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> oh, you never asked. <laughs> Stanislav told me.
0: <laughs>
1: and then uh, it, it, it turned out that Kevin Costner, uh, you know, um, was, Stanislav had been a big fan of Kevin Costner for many, many years. Since he was, he saw the film called 13 Days, where Kevin Costner is, is playing a, mm-hmm. a part of the advice of Kennedy during yeah. the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, Stanislaw, I asked Stanislaw, so have you tried to write Kevin Costner? Yeah, he had tried to write him, but he couldn't write in, in, in English. You know, he do not speak English. Yeah. So I helped him translate a letter. And at the same time, Stanislaw got invited to go to the UN to get an award. So we went with Stanislaw to the UN and to meet up with uh, Kevin Costner.
0: Well, well let's. Uh, let's... Also
1: in the film, we also meet uh, Walter Cronkite on the end, yes. on the way. Yes. What happened was that suddenly, you know, there's so many people because we were making the film about it from different uh, medias who want to talk to Stanislav. But we only had a week to film that the first time. So I was like, we can't spend all this time with the media. I mean, we have to film our own film. So I, I granted a, an interview to um, David Hoffman from the Washington Post. And then these people called me up. They say, like, there's more Walter Cronkite who wants to meet Stanislav. And I'm from Denmark. I didn't know who the Cronkite was. <laughs> so I was like, nah, I can't do that, and hung up. <laughs> <laughs> And then my ex-girlfriend, she's from New York, she was calling me up, are you crazy? Forget about Matt Damon and all the other guys. You want to talk to Walter Cronkite. And, mm-hmm. then, and then I found out that Walter Cronkite, he was very sick, so he was in the hospital. He was getting elderly. Mm-hmm. And he really, really wanted to meet Kevin Stanislav. So he was, like, taking time off from the hospital for one hour just to talk with Stanislav and then go back to the hospital again. Oh, my goodness. So of course i had to grant
0: the big walter cronkite interview oh that's i'm great. sorry
1: i didn't know about him
0: <laughs> oh well that's okay but that's a great story <laughs> that is a great story and obviously you know for people who grew up in the united states and during that period of time uh the news was the not the news unless you heard it from walter cronkite he was is about as preeminent exactly. and 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 trusted a man as there was in america during that period of time and of course the cold war was in full bloom, and of course this took place while Walter, I believe, was still on the air in 1983. I'm almost certain of that. Uh, so, obviously... Exactly. And yeah. Walter
1: had been living in Russia also, so he was really, really, you know... Mm-hmm. He wasn't really much into the subject.
0: Wow. Well, it, it's just... If there's so many elements to the film, and I just feel like we just scratched the surface, but uh, I want to let our listeners know that the film is opening today. That would be September 25th uh, at the Arena Theater here in Los Angeles, and... Um, you can check it out, and, and you can also go to the website, which is "The Man Who Saved the world, movie.com to find out more about this story. It is a remarkable story. And I, I think one of the things I'm just going to throw in a little bit of an editorial comment here and it's not an indictment or I'm not damning you know people, and, but it, it, in a sense, uh, the history provides us with context. And when we forget or ignore history, we do so at our own peril. And uh, the things that happen, that almost happened in 1983 are not going to go away until we make a concerted effort to make sure that they go away. And they're not going away. Those circumstances are here still today. I think we've gotten complacent about the threat from nuclear weapons. And it's great to see a movie that comes out and it tells a story that brings all of these things to life in a way that we can all relate to and understand. And for that, Peter Anthony, I, I applaud what your work here is here. It's wonderful work anyway on its own, but it, to do this and to bring it, to introduce us into to the dialogue that we, we all live in this world is such a wonderful thing. And I, I thank you for that.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you uh, again. Uh, the man who saved the world, and that would be Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov, Petrov. Uh, Petrov, and uh, and the man who brought this to the attention of the world in a way that, that like I said, go see this film. It's a wonderful film. Check it out online and find out when it's going to be in a place where you can see it, the, ma- the man who saved the world. Uh, Peter Anthony, thank you so much for being a part of film school today.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you